Somebody has sent in a question which says, I don't seem to be able to reconcile being nobody, not self, and keep practicing to get somewhere, that is Nibbana. When I get to being nobody, I get stuck in this nowhere existence. So, being nobody. And still being somebody practicing. Since I don't know where the question came from, where the person is at in their practice, but I'm happy to attempt to address it. And there is a dilemma that in this area that's uh, quite well known and in the commentaries, the classical commentaries in the scriptures, uh, the Visuddhimagga, Buddha Gosa talks about there is a path but nobody walks it. And so we, we need to be prepared to accommodate apparent contradictions. It's true the Buddha gave this teaching on not-self but it wasn't a dogma. It's not, this is not a concept or a precept that we have to cling to, a vow, as in, I believe and not self. Uh, if we try to do that, well, uh, we really do uh, get ourselves into a pickle because the relative subjective experience that we all have is that we are somebody. You know, even if through contemplation or meditation uh, we can enter into an accommodation of this uh, possibility of being no abiding self, uh, as soon as somebody offends us, we quickly reconstellate and feel like we're here, definitely. Somebody kicks us in the shins. Do we go to not-self straight away? So we have to accept uh, that there is this relative experience of being somebody. We don't grasp the Buddha's teachings as uh, as a dogma that negates self. Uh, Relatively speaking, conventionally speaking, there is a self. The Buddha talked about oneself properly guided, uh, you know, or you are your own refuge, and and, uh, be a light unto yourself. And conventionally speaking, the Buddha did acknowledge there being a relative conventional sense of somebodyhood. So we can't bypass that idealistically without getting into a lot of trouble. If we do try to, well, then uh, yeah, we do get faced with this dilemma of, well, here I am, 
feeling unfulfilled, feeling limited. I have this teaching about there being a path to nibbana, to liberation, to, to unshakable peace and ease and, and uh, well-being. How do we get from here to there if there's nobody to practice? So we have to accept the relative validity of the being a somebody, somebody here. Now let's, uh, let's just say a little bit about the theory, the concept of it, but how we actually practice, I think, is the most important part. How do we, how do we engage on this path of awareness? How do we apply these teachings so that we are growing in uh, increased understanding, not just growing in increased frustration? This person here has reached a point of quandary where they, they can't get past. And I would suggest one of the things that's worth thinking about or contemplating is, is how we watch, how we apply attention, how we're being mindful. And this teaching is always going on about being mindful. And mindfulness is the way, as the Buddha said. But it's how we do it. Now, we can be doing it. We can be being mindful in a very mechanistic way, kind of like a habitual, willful, you know, like applying a technique. And some meditation teachings are very technique-oriented. You know, you know, in the beginning, some techniques are useful. I, I myself teach you know, using counting the breathing. It can be very good in the beginning to count each out-breath, 1 to 10, 10 to 1, 1 to 9, 9 to 1, 1 to 8, 8 to 1. You know, counting each good long out-breath and and that can be a way of getting a handle on the material that we're dealing with. But we don't want to grasp that tool too tightly. It's like playing, playing the piano. You, you know, you learn the scales, but you don't want to just play scales your whole life. You, know, you want to be able to play the instrument. You're know, playing the guitar. You learn a few basic chords, but then you want to be able to make music. And so there is a risk in our mindfulness meditation that we become mechanical about it. And what is going on in the background is, is something the Buddha warned us against, is this, this uh, momentum of becoming. Yeah? Always trying to become something. Yeah. Become enlightened. Now, one of the dangers of the um, Buddhist path of practice, you know, we have this concept of enlightenment and we come from the perspective of being a deluded ego, we think we have this huge task. I have to get enlightened, and we can make a huge problem out of you know, all these all these hindrances we have to overcome, and all these problems we have to get rid of. And so otherwise, I'm failing. You know, there's those who are enlightened, and there's me who's not. And I have to become enlightened, and we can get this uh, terrible tension uh, built up. Whereas in the, the theistic religions, well, you know, there's an assumption that somebody else has done the business for us, and and then the danger of that is that uh, deluded egos get around with the idea that I don't have to do anything. Yeah. I can just, you know, meet a sort of moderate level of decency, and and then everything's going to turn out okay in the end. And both of those perspectives, uh, both of those deluded perspectives, uh, will leave us actually behaving in ways that uh, fall short of the mark. We don't actually arrive at real increased well-being. Mm-hmm. Keep getting tripped up. So 
we need to be very alert to this in our practice of mindfulness, that we're being mindful, but how are we being mindful? Somebody was saying to me the other day that they had, they were having some doubts about their ability or about their practice I, or about the teachings. I forget what it was now, but they were having these doubts. And, and so they were watching the doubt. But it's how you watch the doubt that matters. You know, if we're watching it with, we're watching it with the, the sense of, of wanting, it's kind of like, it's like a polluted form of mindfulness. It can be sort of mindfulness, but it's a kind of mechanical effort that we're making, watching, 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 you know, watching the doubt, watching the anger. You know, the Buddha said, be mindful of anger and, and, and you'll be free from anger or mindful of suffering, be free from suffering, but it's how we do it. So what I'm suggesting is that, that we need to be very careful and, and examining where we're coming from, that there's not this kind of momentum of becoming going on there the whole time that our mindfulness is not polluted with, with wanting. Yeah. So if the effort that we're making, watching the doubt or watching the anger, isn't resolving the issue, then maybe we need to turn our attention to feeling and asking ourselves the question of how, how economous is our mindfulness, how, how uh, balanced is our mindfulness. Because if we're watching doubt with wanting it to disappear, then there's, there's something else going on. Now, it could be very subtle. It's not, not gross desires, but it's interfering with the process. So this is, and this is not to say that we're, we're doing it all wrong, but rather this is how we purify the kind of effort that we're making. So the mindfulness or, or the awareness that we're exercising needs to be refined as we go along. And I like to think of, of the kind of awareness that we use in practice as not a, not a mechanical application of a technique, but it's, a, it's an appreciative awareness. And I've been contemplating this word a lot lately, the word appreciation, to appreciate something. I think it's, a, it's a wonderful word. It's a very interesting word, a very rich word. And, and this, in, the, in the context of, of, of this contemplation, uh, what is appreciative awareness? What is appreciation? Yeah. I mean, we talk about mindfulness, and that makes a certain suggestion to the mind. And to me, it's always a bit risky because it tends to take you up into where we think our mind is, which is our head. Whereas when you say the word appreciative awareness, hmm, what does that feel like? Yeah. So, so I'm quite keen to encourage this kind of contemplation in our practice, not just mechanical, technical mechanical application of techniques, but to really pick up, pick up carefully into it, examine these words. And they're not just words, are they? The the Buddha talked about satipanya. Some Thai students came a couple of days ago, and and, uh, or actually it was yesterday, and we we were talking about language, and, and I was trying to get them to speak English with me, and they said they well, I could, they could use English when they're at university in Newcastle. When it came to speaking Dhamma, they didn't feel confident at all because they, they didn't understand the English equivalent of these words that were so much a part of their culture. And, and your words, words are not just, they're not just things, are they? Yeah. I, I, see, I see words as like, as like sound symbols. That's why, that's why poetry works, isn't it? You arrange the words in a certain way, 
if a scientist arranges the words in a certain way, then uh, you, you get a certain feeling from them. If a poet arranges them in a different way, you get a different feeling. Uh, somebody in, in Thailand, a, uh, a doctor was telling me how when the doctors are working in the operating theater, they all speak English together because actually Thai language is not so helpful when you're talking about uh, technical details. But they said they would never think of speaking English if they were talking about poetry because for them their language works uh, differently in that way. So contemplating, contemplating the words that we use in practice. You know, the Buddha said satipanya, which you could say mindfulness and clear comprehension. That's what uh, the English translations have been saying for quite a long while now. And my own contemplation of the satipanya, I think of this as, as appreciative awareness. Yeah. Finding our own words yeah. and contemplating in our own words because they, they have a different meaning for us. Yeah. Like if somebody, if somebody comes, to, comes to me and, and says, uh, how's the monastic winter retreat going? You know, if you come to me and say, how's the monastic winter retreat going? And I say... Odlichno. Now all of you are looking really weird, except for two. You know, I thought it was only giving one because I thought only Serbians have this word, but it seems like Slovenians have this word as well. You know, Odlichno means absolutely marvelous, or something like that, doesn't it? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Odlichno. Now, as a word, Odlichno. Now you could think I was swearing, couldn't you? Odlichno. You could think I was having a bad time. <laughs> Odlichno. It's just a noise, isn't it? To us, it's just a noise, but to these two guys, look, they smiled. Did you see? And when I said Odlichno, they had an experience. You know, because sound, words are sound symbols. Yeah? So when we're picking up these Buddha's words, satipanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Personally, when I think about these things, uh, lately I've been pondering, and I, I like this this formation of appreciative awareness because that's what I find, you know, when we're looking at something, how we look at something, how we look at our doubt or how we look at ourselves, how are we doing in our practice? You apply satipanya. So how am I doing my practice? Well, you start thinking about what the scriptures say, how I should be, and then we measure it up at how I am and then how I shouldn't be and so on and Whereas if I look at it with appreciative awareness, ooh, it's very different. Yeah. Appreciation, when we appreciate something. You know, I think of the word appreciation as being a way of talking about mindfulness. To appreciate ourselves, to appreciate others. Yeah. And the Buddha said, when you don't have mindfulness, then you tend to suffer. Well, you can also say, well, when we don't have appreciative awareness, when we don't appreciate each other, what happens? Yeah. We don't appreciate ourselves. And this is, so in this cultivation of appreciative awareness, it does need to be, there needs to be balance. Yeah. If we don't, for instance, we don't appreciate ourselves. Yeah. This is one of the, um, one of the things in the, in the classic Buddhist teachings on the, on the uh, cultivation of virya, yeah, one of the, Ten parameters, one of these, one of these forces of goodness that we're encouraged to cultivate, you know, virya or energy, and one of the ways that the teachings encourage us to 
to work on this is to pay attention pay attention to the things that get in the way, the things that stop you from having energy, spiritual energy we're talking about. You know. And one of the things, obviously, is the first one is laziness, hmm? which is pretty obvious, just no motivation, you think everything's fine, whatever, you know, who wants to talk about spiritual life, you know, just... Just sit down and watch television and you just start to get fat and lazy and unhappy. Well, that's you know, no energy, understandable. You know, laziness. Attachment is the next thing. There you go. Too many attachments. He's out, of, you know, out of ignorance. We grow up and you know, things feel good and, and we don't really look into the nature of this feeling good and we end up through unawareness of creating these attachments and these attachments become burdens and we don't realize that this accumulation of attachments ends up obstructing, very obstructing energy. We don't have any energy because of our attachments. And another one is timidity. As pointed out that if you, if you suffer from timidity, being timid, not being daring, you know, if, we, if we get complacent, if we, I mean, basically we've been too spoiled or for whatever reason we don't have... Uh, any daring energy in our life, well then this becomes an obstruction to generating very or generating spiritual energy. We need to be daring. We need to be willing and interested to make experiments. But then the fourth thing it points out is self-disparagement. Self-disparagement is a big obstruction to virya. If we don't see it, it can uh, basically brings about a kind of uh, an energy block which amounts to uh, depression. And yet if we are practicing, if we're really cultivating, we could be cultivating mindfulness. You know. I've seen people being very mindful, or they think they're being very mindful, and, but in a rather mechanical, technical way, and yet being very uh, lacking in energy, very depressed, uh, no enthusiasm, no vitality. Yeah. Whereas if we consider, you know, this is this this path of practice is the cultivation of appreciative awareness, appreciating ourselves, appreciating ourselves. How do we appreciate ourselves? Seeing our our good qualities, yeah. to appreciate ourselves and to appreciate others. Sometimes we can be so fixated on on others, and this happens. You know, we, the kind of conditioning we go through. We. We think that it's virtuous to pay attention to others, to appreciate others. Then we may be very good at it, very good listening to other people and appreciating others' good qualities, and, but they're not appreciating ourselves. And it goes out of balance. Or it can be the other way. You know, I sometimes I catch myself when somebody comes to me and, and uh, they want me to pay attention to something they are involved with some project or some need they have and then I catch myself instead of actually being able to give them attention as is needed and as is reasonable I keep trying to pull the conversation back to me you know, look at what I'm involved with you know, look at my thing look at my project now if there's appreciative awareness of oneself and others in a balanced way well, then what we have is this we have this sense of the word appreciation the, the ability to to recognize value you know, to to recognize the value of oneself and the value of others or the value of the opportunity the value of our families you know, 
Buddha was very encouraging of, of mindful relationships within our families, within our partners. If we don't have an appreciative awareness, then what happens? We end up taking each other for granted. You find a nice partner in life and get married and uh, no, no mindfulness, no balanced mindfulness, no appreciative awareness, and you just get used to the situation. And what happens when we get used to it is we, we, we can very easily start to focus on the bits that we don't like. You know, it happens, of course, also in monasteries. Uh, Ajahn Jayanto just uh, recently sent me a list of questions uh, on uh, the subject of training or teaching in the monasteries and for the next Forest Sangha newsletter. And, and so I was replying to these, some of these questions and, and one of the points I was making was how I know my own, uh, earlier on in my training anyway, how I used to have to you know, really stop myself I pull myself up, really, from getting caught in being critical of the monasteries that I was staying in. Yeah. Here I was living in you know, close proximity to some really great teachers and with all my, all my needs supplied, you know, all the food, all the clothing, everything supplied. And I listened to my mind you know, criticizing you know, what's going on here. I think I'm practicing mindfulness but am I practicing it in, a, in an appropriate way? Well, again, if I stop and I think appreciative awareness, am I cultivating appreciative awareness? Well, I'm not appreciating this place. I'm not appreciating the teacher. I'm not appreciating the opportunity. And, you know, when, I, when I was first being ordained in time, I remember there were three or four or even five uh, reasonably senior uh, foreign monks who were going through the process of disrobing. And at the time, I was very new. I just arrived and I was full of enthusiasm. And I was so appreciative of the opportunity. There's the opportunity. I can, I can become a monk. <laughs> I, can, I can just meditate all day long. And I just couldn't believe that. And I'm going to be fed. You know, and then I can sit. I can sit next to Ajahn Chah. I can sit next to Ajahn Tate. I can massage his feet in the evening and, and talk to him about my problems. And I was just so appreciative and so grateful. And these other guys, they were just complaining. This teacher, he teaches wrongly, and that teacher, and this place, and that food. And so I, look, I couldn't believe it. Well, then a few years down the line, I look at myself and say, well, what are you doing? Well, yeah, so much for right practice. So appreciative awareness, I think, is something really worth pondering on, really worth you know, thinking about. Are we growing in appreciation? For ourselves, are we growing in appreciation for ourselves? Do we appreciate ourselves more? Do we appreciate each other more? Mm-hmm. There are ways of cultivating this. I think there are. There's lots of ways of um, cultivating. One is just you know to to engage this kind of a contemplation to see well what happens if you don't have it. You take it for, take each other for granted in married relationships. You know, you know people take each other for granted and. Somebody comes along and you fall in love. You've got this great relationship going. You've got a great house together. You've got children. And then, bang, you know, up comes this passionate infatuation with somebody you met in the office or whatever, or at the university or wherever your job is. And, and this, this uh, 
overpowering impulse is, I just can't stay with this partner I've got anymore. Well, if we have prepared ourselves with right mindfulness, or I'm suggesting with appreciative awareness, and say, well, yeah, actually, yeah, this feels very strong. This feels very strong. But we appreciate what we've already got. We're not going to necessarily get rid of or throw away or miss the opportunity that we've already got. And disrobing, monks and nuns that disrobe. I, I've seen this happen many times, and people have been around for a while, and, and they, well, they, what happens is you end up taking this wonderful sense of support that we have in the monastic community, the wonderful opportunity to live with each other, with trust and respect and friendship and commitment and shared interest and aspiration. and It creates like a force field that's energizing and sustaining and you can go through all sorts of difficulties because you feel held in the, in the, by this, uh, the force of the Sangha. It's a wonderful thing. But uh, after a few years, you take it for granted. You're not really, there's not real appreciative awareness. You're not really appreciating what you've got. And think, well, actually, I could disrobe. It's rather irritating having to live with these people. You know, their, their habits, you know, they don't behave in the way that I like. And having to eat when I'm told I'd rather like to eat when I want to. You know, you could basically not have to put up with all these rules and and so on. And I could travel and I could be of benefit to other people. And But what sometimes, sadly, you're missing out is the recognition that a lot of this well-being that you have is relative to the context you're living in. And if there's appreciative awareness, I mean, well, we don't, we're less likely to miss out or misperceive what we've got. So, as I was saying, the uh, one way of cultivating appreciative awareness or appreciation is to is to use this kind of a contemplation to see well, what happens when you don't have it. Start taking things for granted, start getting caught up in complaining and criticizing, and and so on. And also, there are uh, you know there are there are ways of um, of ritually you know to use ritual ways of or or conventional ways of expressing appreciation. I have uh, I have a friend who uh, I saw recently, uh, an American friend I've known for many years, and uh, I've noticed that whenever there's an exchange and I, and I say thank you to her, she always says, "You're welcome." And you say, "Well, yeah, that's what all Americans say. You know, you're welcome." But the the way this person says it, the way this person says it, I always feel like she she means it. And so I think this is something with regards to the rituals we have, you know, the ways of engaging each other, you know, the ways of saying thank you, the ways of expressing appreciation. We can bring mindfulness to it. We can bring attention to it. We can bring watchfulness to how we do these things. The interaction we have with each other, somebody says thank you, say, you're welcome, or don't mention it. Or we can say, yes, you're welcome, or don't mention it, and really mean it. And use our rituals in a, in a conscious way. I, I know um, when uh, when we have the uh, the food offerings, like you know, people bring us the, the meal offering in the monastery, and 
And we have this ritual way of giving the Anamodana, which is a formal way of expressing appreciation, appreciation for this offering, appreciation for the goodness that's been generated. And so I, I, I train myself to be appreciative of this exchange that's taking place. You know, these people, you have, have worked hard and to get money, to buy food, people have worked hard to grow food, to produce food. There's all this effort has gone into producing this food and preparing this food and cooking this food and offering this food uh, so that we can be sustained to live this life and to really consciously appreciate that is a wonderful thing. Or the other ritual way we have of, um, like in this situation where, where one of the senior monks or one of the nuns that comes to visit gives a Dhamma talk and you know, we, we do our best to to uh, to reflect deeply, sincerely on the things that matter and the benefit we find and practice, and then at the end of it, you know, hopefully, one of the senior monks does this handamayang dhammakata satu karang tamase, which means something like, um, "Now let's all acknowledge appreciation of the dhamma talk that's been given." I've never actually looked in the translation of it, but I think that's what it means. And uh, and then all of you say sadhu. Now, you know, this is an opportunity to, to express appreciation. And I know it makes a difference if, for instance, if I, if I finish a talk and then the second monk is sleeping and there's this big long break before the handama yang, you know, oh, well, obviously there's a... <laughs> Rajan Abhinando doesn't usually sleep because actually, it's, you know, he's got a painful back and that keeps him awake during my talks. But actually also Ajahn Abhinanda is somebody who does know how to appreciate uh, and express appreciation. And usually this bunch of people thankfully also know how to express appreciation with this sadhu. And the more appreciation you have, the louder you can say it. Actually, don't be timid. You know, don't be afraid of really expressing appreciation. These are ways of cultivating appreciative awareness. And we have these ritual ways of doing it. Different cultures have different ways of doing it. I remember one, uh, when I was living down in Devon, there was a, a young woman used to come to the evening pujas and, and I'd give a Dhamma talk and, and in the middle she would pipe up, right on, Bhante! And she was, um, she was of the Rajneesh persuasion. And uh, that, was, that was kind of put a little spice to the evening. <laughs> but, yeah, we have these conventional ways of doing it. And, but we can also bring feeling to it. I remember some years ago, and actually it was many years ago now, in Thailand again, it was 1976 or 77, I was down in Bangkok. I think I was getting a new set of dentures at the time. And I uh, happened to be staying in this monastery where uh, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and, and, um, and Ram Das and, and, and their retinue of, of, of friends and followers all turned up at the monastery to listen to the evening Dhamma talk. From the uh, from the abbot of the monastery, and uh, and this is a, it's a royal monastery and in Bangkok, uh, Wat Bawan, and the tradition there is everybody sits in chairs, and the abbot sits at the front in his high seat, and he, if I remember rightly, he was delivering a discourse on the uh, four foundations of mindfulness, uh, Satipatthana Sutta, and, and everybody was sitting there listening attentively, and Ramdas uh, was sitting in the front row there, and Ramdas said. You know, just come out of India or he'd been to Bali or somewhere and his long hair and sitting in the front there in Lotus and rocking backwards and forwards and, and every few minutes he's going, Sadhu, 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 every few minutes. I mean, which is, I guess that's the Hindu way. 
That's um, how they do it in India. <laughs> I remember the abbot of the monastery wasn't used to this. Kind of, and at one stage, halfway through the talk, he, he looks down at him and he says, in this very proper English, he says, rather you should know, even Sukha is Dukkha. And, <laughs> and Ram Dass, <laughs> And it was actually very beautiful, this, uh, this uh, expression of appreciation. And, um, but when you see it, that's another way. Actually, that is another way to cultivate appreciation, when to see somebody, when somebody's expressing appreciation. To really, what does it feel like when somebody says thank you, when somebody appreciates us and means it? What does that feel like you know, to bring an awareness to that? This is uh, you know, like this. Where awareness is magical like this, you know, you know, it's, it, when, you, when you're really, really aware of something, actually, we learn naturally. You know, awareness is the enabler. You know, awareness is what teaches us. When, you know, somebody can be appreciating us. If we're not aware, we don't get the energy. And we could be appreciating somebody else if we're doing it just mechanically, like you know, our meditation or our practices, without feeling, without presence, without awareness, it doesn't communicate. And so, so there are ritual ways of expressing appreciation for cultivating appreciation, spontaneous ways of doing it, you know, doing it with mindfulness, with consciousness. I like to practice when I'm in airport lounges, and you know, you're checking in at the airport desk. And there's this, um, the, the person behind the desk is, takes your passport and, and, and goes through this thing of, did you pack your bags yourself? And have you got any sharp objects? Are you carrying any fluid? And, and you say, no, yes, no, yes. And you go through this thing and you can just be going through it and you think, oh, I wish I'd get on the plane. I wish this was all over. Or you can also, you know, I try to practice just standing there feeling my feet on the ground and appreciating. Here's a person. Here's a person. This person has probably been at the desk for goodness knows how many hours and how many hundreds of times have they had to say, have you got any sharp objects in your bag? Did you pack your bag yourself? How many hundreds of times? And yet they're still making the effort to be kind and nice. Well, is that something to appreciate, isn't it? I really, I try to focus on that, try to appreciate the person. And, and sometimes it really works. You know, the person feels something, you know, and you get a little smile that you saw they didn't give the last person. Because this is, we touch each other with appreciation. We're nourished by appreciation. We're nourished by appreciation when we give this to ourselves. So uh, one of the reasons I'm talking about this is that because um, the risk we have of, of falling into a mechanical approach to practice means that when you get to a position of feeling uncertain, like this particular question, or, you know, the quandary of, of being nobody, getting lost and being nobody, and yet still trying to uh, be walking the path. Well, if we have appreciative awareness, we don't just default to ideas of what we're supposed to be doing about practice. We don't just don't think about how well we're doing or how bad we're doing, yeah. we expand our awareness and we feel the whole situation. We appreciate. We appreciate the dilemma. Now you can appreciate a dilemma, or you can get caught in a dilemma. Dilemma. If we appreciate a dilemma, actually, there's potential in dilemma. Dilemmas on the on one level look disastrous. Yeah. 
It's a dilemma. We've got to solve it. But if we really appreciate the dilemma, appreciate our position in it, appreciate the effort we've been making so far, then we have a bigger perspective on it. And what it does, in my experience, is if we exercise this appreciative awareness, is that we find that we're very agile. We can adjust according to situations, what's called for in situations. And it is, as you've heard me mention many times before, the wonderful experience of living with teachers like Ajahn Tate or Ajahn Chah who who had this really well down, this appreciative awareness, had this really honed down well. You see this tremendous agility, whatever was called for, whether it was dealing with some issue, some problem and you know, the plumbing burst in the monastery and who's going to fix it or, or whether it's some representative from the military has turned up and needs you or wants his attention or whether it's the folk from the village come or whether it's the monks. You know, this wonderful agility, the whole person was able to adjust to what was called for. And presumably they had the same inner ability. You know, Inwardly, whatever was called for, you know, is there something in the body that we need to be looking at? Is there something in the mind? Is there an emotional feeling we need to... If our approach to practice is mechanical, technical, willful, rigid effort, not appreciative awareness, well, then maybe we're paying, giving the wrong kind of attention to the wrong object. This is quite possible. Right mindfulness is paying the right kind of attention to the right object at the right time. So sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we're paying attention to things, you know, it's like paying attention to our anger, and the anger's not disappearing. Nothing's changing. We're just getting more angry. That can happen. Yeah, being mindful. Okay, well, I'm feeling angry. I'll be mindful of my anger. You know, or grief. You're feeling experience of grief. I'll be mindful of my grief. And so the Buddha said, be mindful of the grief. Ajahnanda says, come back to the body. So I feel the grief in the body. Where's the grief in my body? Feel it. And you're being mindful. You're watching it. But what happens is we're actually, we're not watching in an agile, sensitive, appreciative way. We're, we're watching in a rigid, mechanical, habitual way. And we, what could be happening is we're getting pulled right into it. And this, this can happen with pain in practice. You end up, in our so-called mindfulness practice, potentizing the pain more in the language of psychology, re-traumatizing ourselves. This happens regularly in practice, sadly, regrettably. So if we have an appreciative awareness, we're watching grief or we're watching anger. If we feel ourselves getting pulled into this pain, then what our awareness tells us is to pull out and we come back. We turn away from it. Yeah, not habitually ignoring it, but we are, our awareness tells us to pull back from it. We're not looking too close. Sometimes we look too close at things, you can't see what's going on. You know, I was on the, I was on the tube in, in London a few weeks ago, and you know, when the tube goes past those big posters, you know those big posters on the side of the tube, these huge great big posters, and when you're right up against them, what you see is just a whole lot of little dots, little coloured dots. But then when you're standing on the platform, you say, oh, there's a nice beach and, you know, whatever, a nice picture. If you're too close to something, you can't see it. We need to be agile in our attention. If we have a habit, 
you know, particularly if we're very willful and very focused in sort of character, we, we can hone right in on something and we can just... It's not an appreciative awareness which is showing us the picture, which is what's needed for letting go to happen. We're getting absorbed into it, yeah. into our thoughts, into our feelings, into our emotion, into our pain. So with agility of attention, we're able to pull back if we need to. And sometimes we do need to. Or sometimes we need to look closer. Yeah. And reflecting on this the other day, I can remember when I was a very small kid and I went to, went to the doctor and I can't remember exactly what the situation was. I think I was going to have an injection in my backside and I was afraid that people outside the window could see <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, what happened was uh, the doctor taught me this thing about the lace curtains that if you look up really close to the lace curtains, you can see through them. But when you're back from the lace curtains, you can't see through them. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. When you look up right close, you can see things in it. You can see through things. Whereas if you're not close enough, you can't see through things. You just see this white haze. It's like a lace curtain. You just can't see anything. But when you really do get close, you can see through it. And that's what's needed also sometimes in our mind states. You know, sometimes we do need to look really, really close and really still and make them really focused. But whether we should be looking close or whether we should be pulling back, how are we going to know? Well, if our practice of mindfulness is mechanical, is habitual, application of technique, then we run the risk of it not working. Whereas if we have this agility of attention, as I'm suggesting, comes from appreciative awareness, then we can adjust according to situations. So inwardly, within ourselves and our practice, we can see where we need to make adjustments accordingly. And outwardly, if we're suffering in our relationships, somebody criticizes us and we start suffering. If we're being mindful in a mechanical way, Maybe we're not going to see the bigger picture. Maybe the criticism is valid. Mm. Mm. Can we expand our awareness and appreciate what's coming to us? No, I know when people when people criticise the monastery here, sometimes I I get uh, get feedback and people say, "Why isn't the monastery running courses in sutta study?" Saying, oh, I suppose we should really. You know, we should run courses in sutta study, and we should do this, and we should do that, and you know, and uh, people tell me what we should should be doing, what, and what we shouldn't be doing. I hear that quite often as well. Yeah. And if I'm not careful, I know that I can just default to becoming defensive mm-hmm. and critical of myself, and say. Been here for 17 years and we're still not running suitor classes. But then you can't do everything. Whereas if there is a a sensitivity to the situation, somebody criticizes the monastery, instead of just going to thinking about how the monastery should be and comparing to other monasteries, you know, people say, well, at this monastery they do that, and that monastery they do this, and your monastery you do nothing. I don't often talk like that. I shouldn't exaggerate, but sometimes it comes like that. And uh, 
Instead of defaulting to comparing with other monasteries or comparing with what the teachings say or comparing to Asia or monasteries in Asia, with appreciative awareness, you just come back and appreciate the situation, appreciate the criticism. Get a bigger picture. Feel what it feels like. Go to silence. And appreciative awareness actually is quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We pull back from habitual thinking and reacting. So if we train in this, then we receive some criticism, and somebody criticizes the monastery, and just go to a feeling of awareness and stop thinking about it and listen, see what comes out. But actually, this monastery, we're not, you know, it's not what we're doing. It's the point. We're not here to do things. I mean, the whole world is doing things all the time. You know, this, what this is about actually is about providing a space. You know, that's, that's what I'm interested in. I don't want to do things. I don't want to be running courses. I just don't want to do it. And actually, what I do want to do is, in this busy, hyperactive, confused, unhappy world of ours, I want to create a space that's quiet and still, welcoming, receptive, energized, clean, and that people can come into this space and experience themselves in a different way. And think, well, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's what we've been working towards. And actually, that's what it does. That's what this place does. And I see people come here. I mean, every Sunday night, people come here. And then during the week, often you come in, people, there's a car parked out there, and there's just somebody sitting in here. They don't want to talk to anybody. They don't want to hear me pontificating about anything. They don't want to go and talk to Ajahn Abhinanda about their problems. They just want to come and sit and be still and appreciate the space, appreciate the silence, because it's rare. And that appreciation that they've got it, and I can remember it, and say, well, actually, that's all right. And then we resolve it. So this appreciative awareness is uh, something that we can cultivate. Um, and we exercise it uh, both in, our, in the outward world, in our relationships, and, and, and inwardly. Then it's my experience, my confidence, that this does take us to increase ability to solve the kind of dilemmas that this particular question uh, approaches. So uh, I don't know where this person's coming from and I can't answer their question specifically, but I can suggest that if we just contemplate appreciative awareness, just, or just even the word appreciation, just contemplate this word appreciation, not how am I supposed to be practicing or what are the books I'm supposed to be doing now, but just appreciation and appreciate the effort that you're making in practice. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.